1 Peter 1, we're going to start at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This is God's word. Let's, um, let's pray. Father, we, um, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is here now, and um, we pray that he would speak, pray that um, he would teach us and lead us and help us to see the hope that you have given us. Amen. Amen. Um, about 10 years ago, uh, we, uh, we lived in a house in East London, and we got a mouse problem. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a mouse problem in your house or flat. Uh, it's very frustrating. And um, we, were, we, were, we were battling with these mice. And then one, one early morning, I can't remember why I was up early in the morning, but I kind of went temporarily mad. I saw a little mouse. It's about 5.30 in the morning. I saw a little mouse come out into the living room. And I was so fed up with these mice. I went to my toolbox and I picked up a hammer. And I quite literally started chasing the mouse around the living room with a hammer. Now, if you've ever chased a mouse, you realize that's actually not a, it, it, it's quite a frustrating task. Um, but this mouse then ran up the hoover. We had, for some reason, the hoover was out, ran up the hoover pipe. And so I switched on the hoover. And um, I thought, brilliant, fantastic. The mouse disappeared. I switched off the hoover and the mouse ran back out again. And um, ended up, the mouse ended up behind the fridge freezer. So basically, in my kind of psychotic rage, I grabbed hold of the fridge freezer and I shook it and the mouse had taken the chocolate off the uh, trap and run away and uh, I, I didn't manage to catch the mouse and I, I remember that feeling of just utter defeat and I collapsed on the sofa and made myself a cup of tea. <laughs> now that's a silly story, that's a silly story but, but actually our lives can kind of collapse on the sofa in a much more serious way. We can be overwhelmed with the feeling of defeat and discouragement and collapse. We can, we can have that kind of feeling that, that really we just, we just want to give up. It's just too much. We can't take things anymore. Now, it's not necessarily one dramatic thing in my life that makes me do that. It, 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 it it could just be the grind of life, a number of disappointments, uh, the opposition we face as believers. Um, we, we regularly face the problem of hopelessness in our lives, don't we? Our lives are a regular diet of having small and big hopes dashed. I'm sure you can think of some in your life uh, this evening. Now, it, it may well be that you've got a charmed life at the moment and everything's hunky-dory and, and it's going swimmingly for you. Uh, but you will actually experience this you will experience this sense of hopelessness and dashed hopes. And, and in fact, one of the important aspects of maturity is the realization that many of your dreams will go unfulfilled. That's one of the things that kind of comes as you get older. You just realize, actually, a lot of my dreams will actually go unfulfilled. The gifted young man who finishes university, full of confidence, feels the world is his oyster, and then he gets turned down interview after interview 
I saw a letter I've written into the Guardian newspaper um, a couple of weeks ago from a 33-year-old woman who was saying, is it too late for me to find a relationship? Is the pastor who secretly dreamt that, his, that thousands would flock to his ministry and slowly he, he's humbled and realizes he's just one of many others who are working away? There's the couple who look forward to their life together, but then the man gets chronically sick, and suddenly the wife becomes the carer, as well as the wife. There's a talented musician who battles depression and panic attacks. Life is a regular diet of having small and big hopes dashed. You know that. You experience that. Now, obviously, when we, when we experience this, it quickly brings temptation, doesn't it? The temptation to doubt, the temptation to discouragement, the temptation to despair. You remember the very sad suicide of Robin Williams, who, um, who basically had, you know, world famous, a genius, and yet the thought of having to cope with Parkinson's disease just, just led him to take his own life. Remaining encouraged in this world is not easy. It is a difficult thing, and you can start to lose hope that things will become better, that they will improve. So how do we handle this? How do we cope? How do how do we survive in this world? Well, we tend to think that we feel good or bad because of circumstances, don't we? You know, we, we kind of think, well, it's my life that's a problem. It's, it's because this thing has happened. It's, it's, it, I, what I need is to get another life. I need to move. I need to change my job. I need more money. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't think about our circumstances. I'm not saying we shouldn't make positive changes or look for practical solutions to the issues in our lives. We should absolutely do these things. But hopelessness is actually a lot more than that. It's more complicated than that. It's a famous Jewish author, a guy called Viktor Frankl, and he was a doctor in the, Jewish, in the German death camps for the, for the Jews. And um, he wrote lots of books after the Second World War. And he was, he was very interested in this question, kind of, what, you know, how do people survive? Why do some wither? Um, why do some people become informants? And why were some kind of strong and true? And he tells a story of a, a friend of his who was a composer who had a dream towards the, end of the, to, towards the end of the war that the war would finish on the 30th of March. And he, he felt that, that, that an angel, some kind of heavenly being, had given him this revelation. And, um, of course, it, start, it's, it became apparent as, 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 as it got close to, th- to the 30th of March that the war wasn't going to finish. And um, on, the, on the night before the, the 30th, on the 29th, he, he, became, he felt sick, very, very sick. And a couple of days later, he died. And his point was this, that actually it was all about hope. And what that man faced was hopelessness. It was the people's solid hope who could survive the German concentration camps. And it's proven again and again by people who suffered terribly that actually it's not really about circumstances. The issue is really one of hope. Do we have hope? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying our circumstances don't affect us. But the main issue which we face is the loss of hope in the middle of circumstances. Proverbs 13.2 says this, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope that's been lost makes our souls sick. And so we see how important it is for us to have hope. We can't live without hope. We need hope or we get very sick souls, don't we? 
Now, on the, on the other hand, when people have hope, they are able to cope with the most incredible things, with the most difficult things. So as we think about hope today, I, I, hope, I hope that you realize that this is not just kind of superficial stuff. This is actually how to survive. This is how to keep going. And this passage in 1 Peter is all about hope. It's written in the context of suffering and trials and hopelessness. It's written in the context of believers being lampoons and criticized for their faith. They are, they are suffering real hardships, terrible hardships, physical abuse. And of course they wonder, is it really worth it? They are, they are facing these issues of despair and discouragement and doubt. And 1 Peter, 1 Peter is basically written to, to, to keep them going, to sustain them, to give them hope in the middle of it all. You'll see in the middle of verse 3 there's this phrase, a living hope. We've been given a new birth into a living hope. The circumstances are hard. Being, being a follower of Jesus leads to being scorned. It doesn't, look like, it doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. But Peter says, in the middle of this, there is a living hope. A living hope. And that's what we need to keep coming back to. And so what I want us to do in these verses is, is go through four foundations of hope. Four things that sustain hope from these verses. And you can see the outline on your sheet. New birth, resurrection, inheritance, and powerful protection. Firstly then, new birth. Now, hope doesn't start with us or our resources. Hope starts with God. Hope isn't created by our wills, but it's created by God. Look at the middle bit of verse 3. It says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Now, what you will notice there is that it is God who is doing stuff. It it is God. God God is the one who is doing this. He is the subject of the sentence, and we are the object of the sentence. Now, that phrase, has given us new birth, in Greek is actually just one verb. It's just one word. There's no no equivalent in English. So it gives it a whole phrase. But the point is that it is God who is doing this verb. In other words, we don't do it. We don't give ourselves life. We... We don't provide new birth for ourselves. It is given to us. And the reason we don't do it is because naturally, as we come into the world, the Bible tells us, we are spiritually dead. Now, we're obviously physically alive. Our hearts are beating and we're breathing, drinking coffee, playing tiddlywinks. We're doing all kinds of interesting stuff. But inwardly, we're spiritually dead. We're cut off from spiritual life. Naturally, I'm dead to God and God is dead to me. And that is why God seems distant and unreal and, and meaningless. Now, notice how strong this is. You know, if, if, you're, if you're spiritually sick, you can take some medication, talk with the doctors and get an answer. But if you're dead, you can't take any medication. You've, you've got to put the paddles on me. When you're dead, you can't phone the ambulance and say, excuse me, I think I'm dead. To, to be spiritually dead is to be as far from God as it is possible to be. Therefore, we need God to, God to intervene, don't we? We need God to bring us new life. God has to do it. And that is why God is the subject of the verb. Now, what this verse is teaching us is what theologians call monogism. It's a big word for you. Monogism, it just comes from Greek. It means his soul working or soul energy. Monogism is a technical word to say that God works salvation in us alone. The bringing of spiritual life is God's work in us. It it is not a cooperation. That is called synergism. It is not a cooperation. It it is not a joint venture partnership between me and God. God. God doesn't just offer me something and then I take it up. But actually, 
he does something in me. He brings me new life. He gives me new birth. It's produced in me by God alone. God comes and puts the paddles on me and, and brings me out from the dead. Now notice that this is before I ever believe. Faith comes after God's action, not before. I'm, I must believe, but faith is a result of God working in me. That's why it says that the, all this work is about God's great mercy. If it was what we do, it would be about us, but, but it's rooted in God alone, in his mercy. And that's why God is praised right at the beginning of verse 3. That's why it says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Literally what that says is blessed. Blessed is a way of saying that God might, might lift up his own name. He says, you, now you've done it, so you've got to get the praise. Praise be to you, God, because you have done it. Imagine a scene around the Christmas tree this year. It's not too long ago, is it? You can, you, you can remember. There's a big present with your name on it. You rip it open uh, with, uh, with incredible excitement. And it's the new DVD of the Frozen film. Everything you've been longing for. You're very excited. It's been the top of all your wish lists. And as you open it, you thank yourself. And you say, what an amazing present I've given to myself. Now, your family in those circumstances would look, would look at you in a, as if you were bizarre and perverse, something wrong with your mind. Because, of course, you don't give a gift to yourself. The whole point of gifts is that they are given to you by someone else. So, obviously, here in verse 3, God is working in you and doing something in you. It is God's monogistic work. You have been born to a living hope by his mercy. So your hope's not rooted in your feelings. It's not rooted in your sense of zeal, your gritty determination. It's not you hoping against, you know, hoping against all hope. It's not about you being a kind of spiritual bear grills, you know, surviving in the wilderness because you're a tough guy. Hope's not based on something that we've done. We haven't built it or made it happen. It's not created by us. Rather, hope is objective. It's God's work in us and to us. It's his initiative. It's his power that makes it. We don't create it. We just take our stand on it. And notice that it's in the perfect tense. It says he has given us. In other words, it's a completed action. It's already been done. It's already been put into effect. So you see, just as we start, hope has this incredible basis, this strong, solid basis, because it's founded on God's work, not on me. Something that God has done in me. He started in me. So that's the first foundation, new life. Second foundation, resurrection. Resurrection. Now, as a vicar, I end up doing, I, I end up doing some funerals. And um, the hopelessness of funerals is very, very real. Um, there's one lady uh, who had um, died uh, uh, just, just down the road from, from uh, where we live. She'd been knocked over by a car. And uh, I met her sister to talk about the service. And when I asked her sister, you know, what shall I say um, about, about your sister at the funeral? The first thing, first thing that came out of her mouth was, well, she was a bit of a moaner. She was a bit of a moaner. At another recent funeral, a man's, a man's wife, the, the, this, this guy was 91. His wife wasn't there because she had Alzheimer's. And then he was also estranged from his children, so his children weren't there. There were just a handful of people there, and they didn't really have much to tell me to say, you know, apart from things like he liked country-western music. And Now, now even, even if at your funeral you have family there and people there, and people say nice things, I'm sure they will, the fact is we all still go to the same place. Um, just down the road 
from where we live is the famous Brompton Cemetery. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of beautiful garden cemetery, if you like those kinds of things. Row and row, row upon row of, of graves. There's 200, there's been 200,000 burials there. The reality is, life is a regular diet of having small and big hopes dashed. And cemeteries are very good reminders that all of our hopes of endless, productive, influential lives will be finally dashed. It doesn't matter who, who you are, it doesn't matter what your education is or how gifted you are or how your career is going. Every hope that you have for this world will be dashed. Thanks, Andy. Andy. I was uh, really enjoying the, uh, my time this Christmas. Uh, I felt a lot better before I came, and now uh, you're making me feel worse. Where's the hope in this? Where's the hope? Well, the living hope is here in this passage. You see, our ultimate hope is tied up with Jesus with the risen Jesus Christ, with his resurrection. His resurrection. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now notice this. It's not that we as Christians hope that there's life after, after death, and so we talk about Jesus being raised from the dead. Rather, it's the other way around. The fact of Jesus' resurrection is what gives us hope. There's, a, there's an atheist critique of Christian hope. It goes all the way back to Nietzsche, the German philosopher Nietzsche. And, and basically, he said, look, you know, the, the idea of Christianity is based on blind hope. Nietzsche said this. He said, hope is the evil of evils because it prolongs man's torment. Hope is the evil of evils because it prolongs man's torment. In other words, he said, he said look, blind hope just kind of stops us from dealing with the brutal reality of life. It's a kind of escapism, a kind of irrationality. It's, it's failing to face the facts. It's lacking courage in the face of hopelessness. And so he advocated for a kind of heroic hopelessness. Now, where, where Nietzsche's right there is that hope it has got to be based on something, hasn't it? Um, it's got to be based on truth. It's got to be based on reality. It can't just be like a kind of cosmic comfort blanket to make me feel better. And actually, his critique was right when it comes to kind of liberal Christianity, which would say, you know, Jesus has kind of risen in our hearts, and it's a beautiful idea, it's a beautiful story, but it doesn't relate to anything. But when Nietzsche gets it wrong is that he misunderstands what biblical hope is, because Christian hope is not primarily a psychological state. It's not something subjective inside of me. The good news is not that Jesus has risen in my heart. Rather, hope is based on an out-there thing, the actual resurrection of Jesus. The actual real, historical, factual resurrection of Jesus is subjective. So the question is not whether we feel there's something that happens after we die, you know, whether I've had some kind of experience or I have this kind of vague hope. The question is, is, was there an empty tomb? Was there an empty tomb? See, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus would be just someone to look back on and admire and respect. But you can never have faith in him because his hopes were dashed. He died like everyone else. But the factuality of the resurrection of Christ is the bridge between Jesus then and us now. And so Christian hope, you see, is based on the fact of a risen saviour. And the point here in verse 3 is that, that God's work in us now is to unite us to the historical risen Jesus Christ. That is what God is doing. You've been put into his historical resurrection. 
You've been united to what he's achieved. Notice it's not saying that you kind of get your own little resurrection, a kind of faint echo of Jesus's, a kind of second-class resurrection where there's, no, where, where there's standing room only. No, you get Jesus's own resurrection. You, you are united to him and his resurrection power. And you're getting a taste of that today in your life. You're experiencing some of that in your life. That's why you've changed. That's why you keep going in difficult circumstances. That's why you're here tonight. Look, maybe there will be a crowd at your funeral. Or maybe there will just be a man and a dog. Maybe you will achieve great things in your life. Or actually your life will be one disaster after another. Maybe you'll be famous. Or maybe you will die early of some horrible disease. But no matter what happens to the hopes and dreams in your life now, this resurrection hope is secure. You'll be raised up with Jesus in his resurrection. And the fact is that this Christian hope, it makes, it makes the cemetery a bus stop. It's not your final home. It's just en route. You have a solid resurrection hope in him. Thirdly, we come to inheritance. Inheritance. I want you to imagine two men who are employed to dig a hole. And basically their job is to dig a hole in the ground and then fill it. And day after day, this is what they do. One man says, look, this is a mind-numbing job. I can't do this. And after two days, he quits. The second guy keeps going for a year, digging the hole and then filling it. What's the difference? The first guy is being paid £4.50 an hour. The second guy is, is promised a million quid if he does it for a year. Doing exactly the same thing, but the way they look at what they're doing is utterly different. See, we can see that hope is motivated by, by anticipation of the future. It is not about the circumstances, but it is looking through the circumstances to what is coming. And here, in this verse, we see our hope in Jesus Christ is described as an inheritance. Verse 4, we have, we have been given new birth into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. This, this is an inheritance. It is something we get in the future. We don't have it now. We're waiting for it. But this inheritance is described in a special way. It says it doesn't perish or spoil or fade. And it is kept in heaven for you. And the point is, the point is it's very, very secure because it's in heaven, not on earth. Now, think about how that contrasts with every other hope that we have in our lives. See, every hope will be dashed. Look, I, I don't mean to be rude, but at this moment, you are perishing, spoiling, and fading. Now, I know you guys in your 20s, you may think, speak for yourself, mate. I look pretty good. But in fact, bring in the 18-year-olds and they think you're over the hill. Just... And, and I'm afraid it's just going to get worse. It's just going to get worse. I've got, one of those, um, I've got one of those aging apps on my phone. I don't know if you come across aging apps. And it basically gave me a picture. I took a picture of myself. And it showed me what I would look like when I was 70. And, and actually, I was surprised by how much it surprised me. I was actually seeing myself there with kind of wrinkles and everything. Um, really surprised me. See, the fact is we're not timeless. And yet we live in this kind of illusion that we are. And actually, it's easy to perpetuate that when you're, when you're just with people of your own age. You think, oh, you know, we're, we're not getting older. We're just the same. Students, if there's any students here, it's so important to hang out with people who aren't students. 
People in your 20s. so important to hang out with people who aren't just in their 20s. The fact is, we're all going to look like our grandmas. Our skin will be wrinkling, we're perishing, we're spoiling and fading. And all of this, this is God's wisdom to teach us that life comes and goes. It is not permanent. Don't cling on to your youth. Our culture will pressurize you to cling on to your youth as if this is some amazing, incredible time. Don't run to plastic surgery when the wrinkles come. It's a funny thing I've come across, and I don't mean to be sexist here. You can come and have a go at me afterwards if you think I'm being sexist. But I've just come across many women who, who hide their age. and won't tell people what their actual real age is. It's strange, isn't it? Why would you want to hide the fact that you're getting closer to your inheritance? Wouldn't that be something to rejoice in? You're getting older. You're getting closer to Christ. Why cling on to some illusion and fantasy of timelessness? It's like kind of chasing mice around a house at five o'clock in the morning. It's a bad idea. <laughs> See, the inheritance here, the, the, the inheritance the Bible talks about, it says it doesn't perish, spoil, and fade. And the reason it doesn't do these things is because it's Jesus' inheritance. So we're raised with him, aren't we? We've been united to him. And, and we don't get our own kind of second-class resurrection. We get his. And in the same way, we don't get a second-class inheritance. We don't get kind of handoffs. We're united to him. And so we get a share in his inheritance. And Jesus' inheritance is not rubbish. It's not disappointing. It's not temporary and rotting and momentary. It's eternal, secure, and timeless glory and joy. It's kept in heaven for you with Jesus. The Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, he said this, How great is the goodness that Jesus has laid up for those who fear him. Just as the miser pays up money that he may feast his eyes upon it, so Christ has laid up unsearchable riches that he may supply all our need out of them. Unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. Sure, your life at the moment may feel like you're digging holes in the ground, and it may feel a bit pointless. And you may be thinking, what on earth is this all about? What is God doing in my life today? But the fact is a big inheritance is coming. Hold on, the reward is coming. Here's another quote from John Newton. He he uses this analogy. He says, suppose a man was going to to York to to inherit an extremely wealthy and big estate. And his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which meant he had to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we would think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining last mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. Of course, he's going to inherit a big estate. See, hope is about looking through the the circumstances to something more, to what is coming, looking to the inheritance. Fourth foundation for hope, powerful protection, powerful protection. So we've seen God's work to bring us life. We've, we've looked at the resurrection. We've looked at the inheritance. These are all solid bases for hope. But as you go into 2015, how is this year going to go? What will happen to you? Will you still be walking with Jesus by the end? How do you know that you'll get the inheritance I mean, we have lots of ups and downs, don't we? I don't know how you feel tonight. Maybe you feel a bit dry or weary, maybe a bit fed up. And we know how easy it is to drift off, don't we? 
All of us, we can drift off so easy. There are so many temptations. Maybe there's some particular temptations in your life at the moment. Maybe at work, maybe with someone of the opposite sex. And and just think about the thoughts that go through our head. They're embarrassing, aren't they? Praise the Lord that people can't read our minds. Doubts come up in us. We we read something or see something on TV that's a kind of bit skeptical about about Jesus. And and we start to doubt or... Also, we have particular experiences that make us doubt. We read a particularly difficult passage in the Bible. We think, well, what's this on about? Is this really true? Am I just deluded? Wouldn't it be easier just to kind of leave it all behind and go and do something else? We, we drift off so easily. But the great news in verse 5 is that you are protected by God's power. Verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Your perseverance is, is not finally up to you. Now, we've already talked about God's monogistic work, haven't we? That God has to do it. He, the new life that we get comes from him. It, doesn't, it isn't something we work up in ourselves. But in verse 5, it's not just the beginning of that new life that is from God. Actually, the end is, is also in God's hands. It, it's not even, it's, it, even our faith is preserved by him. Our faith is preserved by his power. Now, of course, it says here, we must have faith. We're shielded by by God's power uh, through faith. We must have faith. We must trust. We must believe. We must even persevere. And 1 Peter is written so that we will persevere. God's promises here are not not to make us passive or make us easygoing in the face of temptation, but rather they're, they're there to stir us up and give us confidence in the battle. But even as we do that... Our confidence is not in our faith. We don't have faith and faith, like it's a a kind of spiritual power which we can wield independent of God. It's not our faith that ultimately keeps us. It's not our faith that brings us life. It's not even our perseverance that holds us. Rather, what we see here is is that it is all about God shielding us. And as the, the, the word that is used in Greek there is this word describing sentry duty done by soldiers. It's saying, it's saying that the Lord has become your bodyguard. He's your close protection. His almighty power surrounds us until Christ returns. We're preserved and protected in Christ. And he never lets us go. He, he's, he's not distant and far away. Whatever your feelings tell you, whatever doubts you're struggling with tonight, his power is almighty and protecting. Now when you take verse 5 against the broader background of the New Testament, the reality is that you are defended and protected because you are in Christ. You are risen with Christ, you share in Christ's inheritance, and now you're protected in Christ. No temptation can draw you from Christ. No doubt can overwhelm you. No depression can destroy you because you belong to him. You are shielded ultimately by Christ himself. Now, as you look back over 2014, you can, you can see that. There, there are times in 2014 when you could have drifted off and some, temp- some kind of temptation could really have made you stumble. Things could have gone very differently. Plenty of things that could draw you away from Christ, but you're, you're here tonight, aren't you? Because of his preserving power. So already in this last year, you have evidence in your life of God's protecting, preserving power. You, you, you have already seen it at work in your life. And it will be the same in 2015. God will use all kinds of providences in your life to sustain you and keep you. Maybe, it, maybe it'll be a, a Bible study 
or a book that you read, or a conversation with someone, or a friendship, or the prayers of someone in church, or a particular scripture, or just some kind of chance encounter that God uses. The point is that the Lord will use a thousand different events, circumstances, and people to keep you going. All his power is bended and controlled and used to preserve you and protect you. And do you know what? Your protection and preservation is more important than the preservation and protection of the whole creation. Because your salvation needed the cross. Christ didn't need to die for the world to be created. But he did need to die for you to be given new life. And that means that upholding that new life that you've been given is more important to your father than upholding heaven and earth and keeping the earth in, 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 in orbit. Keeping you in spiritual life is more important to God than sustaining the universe. Do you trust God to keep the universe going in the next year? We can definitely trust him to preserve you. You can be sure of his protecting power hovering over you. The Lord is doing sentry duty on your life. So as you look forward to 2015, you can be full of hope. We're not left with Nietzsche's heroic hopelessness. And we don't have to escape into some kind of blind hope, some kind of sentimentality. But we've been given living hope. And that living hope, it is built on new life from God, on, on the empty tomb and resurrection, on the future inheritance, on God's protecting power. It's good news, isn't it? It's good news. We don't know what circumstances uh, we'll be facing. We don't, we don't know what our lives will be like. Uh, there will be defeats and successes. There'll be difficulties and encouragements. We don't, know, we don't know how much we'll be chasing mice in this coming year. But we know that this 2,000-year-old hope, it holds good, and it will sustain you, and it keep us going, and it will enable us to look through our circumstances. It will give us courage. Uh, a quote from C.S. Lewis to finish. There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made, made our friends or chose our work, and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. All your life, an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming when you will wake to find it beyond all hope and you will be there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that you've not given us small things, superficial things, weak things, but you've given us a living hope. And you've worked this life in us. You have put us into Christ and we know his resurrection power in us. And you've uh, given us this inheritance and it is safe with you. You are protecting this amazing inheritance that is waiting for us. And, and right now, today, at this very moment, you are shielding us with power. These are amazing things, Father. And we pray that you would sustain us in living hope in this coming year. In the name of Christ. Amen.